On this week's episode, we decide to fight scary bear men with Antonio Banderas. Yep, it's time to discuss 1999's The 13th Warrior. I'm Troy Sauer. I'm Brian Anderson. And this is Not a Bomb. Brad, happy Friday. We're, we're recording on an off night, right? Yeah, I'm, this, the vibes are all different tonight, man. Totally. Like we are flying high different. off a of work week. I started a new job, and then we're podcasting, and you're all sauced up. I love it. I love it. I'm not all sauced up. I just, so Fridays are, work is done, go out to dinner with the family. I might or might not get to sleep in. It's undecided. It always depends on a softball, baseball schedule. So yeah, it's going to have a different feel. Sunday, I don't know about you, I, f- I feel calm. It's it's more of a decompressed time. You're getting ready for Monday. Tonight, I'm just like, wow, that <laughs> you, that week can go F itself. And I'm just ready to, you know, have a little fun. So this- Let's this take will, on some bear men. Let's get some broadswords and take on some bear men. How about that? Oh my, could you not have picked a more manly film than than this week? So what, what are we talking about tonight, Brad? We are talking about 1999's um, The 13th Warrior, written by Michael Crichton of Jurassic Park fame and directed by John McTiernan of Die Hard fame. And John, Troy, Mc, yeah, John McTiernan has been on the show before. Yeah. Are you sitting down? I'm, I'm sitting down, yes. Okay. I, I need to confess something before we keep going in this episode because you might get up and leave. Uh-oh. But I need to confess something to That's you. That's never going to happen. You complete me, Brad. Okay. I like Predator more than Die Hard. Yeah. Okay. So listen, <laughs> I didn't know you were going to say that. I might have to leave over that one. Seriously? Over over Die Hard? Yeah. Cause it's the science fiction part of it, man. I really? love it. I think, okay. I think Predator is the perfect action film. Well, I'm look, I'm not going to disagree. Predator is one of the perfect action. But yeah, if I'm Predator, it, no, it's no Die Hard. So that's fine. That's why I just like a little bit more concept to my action film. Okay. Die Hard has all the concept. What are you talking about? Does it have an alien from another planet? Um, well, I guess, <laughs> I guess, I guess the Germans and that could be from another yeah, planet. I was going to say yeah, sure. it, it's, okay. it's the eighties. It could be. Yeah. So alien, if, if you're saying alien from outer space or alien from another country, I mean, we're talking semantics here. Listen, we're, okay. we're digressing. Uh, I, I thought it would be good. So this is an interesting film. It falls in that genre of, you know, men or women on a mission. And I don't know about you, Brad. These are some of my favorite action films because you you get this whole simple plot where you get a group of people together. They're going to go off and do something. And what's fun about that is you usually have a lead character, but behind them are all these different types of personalities. So I thought it would be cool for us to have a little fun and say, okay, what's our favorite, like our top three men, women on a mission movies. So I'm going to start with you. And I don't know if you ranked these. I ranked mine. I did. Okay. So let, let's hear your number three. 
Okay, my number three is a 1986 coming-of-age drama directed by Rob Reiner. I'm sorry, uh, what? Based on, based <laughs> on a Stephen King um, book, oh. novella, I think, The Body. Uh, do you want to see a dead body, Troy? It is Stand By Me. I, you know what? That's such an interesting pick. I never would have thought that uh, to fall into the genre, but when you take a step back, it 100% meets all the prerequisites. And yeah, I, I mean, if you're thinking about people coming together for a common goal and the movie centers around, you know, that group, man, what a pick. I love that movie. I love it. I, I'm, I'm with you, man. It's so good. So the only part that I do, the, the, the puking part, I, I usually fast forward. I'm, oh, okay. I can't, I can't put up with that. So you're number three. Well, I look, I could have picked 1954 as the seven samurai. I mean, nobody can you know just you can't contend with that film in terms of the the iconic imagery how many movies it's influenced yeah and i would have I, even picked 1960s the magnificent seven which is based on that and i love that film i so i i can i do a caveat yeah i didn't pick the big franchises so i don't have indiana jones i don't have lord of the rings i don't have star wars we talk about that stuff all the time so I wanted to kind of do something a little different. So I didn't go with the the big boys. I, I did too. So I, I was looking at these two. I feel like Seven Samurai was sort of the template for this type of genre. Yes. And Magnificent Seven is a, is a great example of a Western being influenced by samurai film and taking that genre, sort of updating it. And it, it's just as fun as the Seven Samurai. However, I still wanted to play within that specific framework. So I also went with a 1986 film. That's why I was kind of laughing a little bit. <laughs> and I thought, well, I, I could choose The Magnificent Seven, Seven Samurai. But listen, let's let's take the Western and Men on a Mission. And let's, let's talk about 1986, The Three Amigos with Martin Short, Chevy Chase, and Steve Martin. I, I mean, it's poking fun specifically at The Magnificent Seven where you have three actors who think that they're going out into the desert to perform a show and they end up really having to defend a village. And I don't know what you feel about that film. I mean, I can't sit here and defend it from a script or quality perspective, but damn, is that movie not funny? And, and it's, it's funny. a lot of fun. It's funny. Yeah. Well, who's, what's your number two then? Uh, I know I said I was going to stay away from like big time movies, but um, my second film is from 1975. It's a thriller directed by Steven Spielberg. Pretty much was the catalyst for summer blockbuster films. It is Jaws. Oh, yeah. See, that's that started the blockbuster film. Yes. Um, you know, the obviously, there aren't an adventure to kill a great white shark. Uh, so, yeah. And they're going to need a bigger boat. Okay. I like it. Jaws. Okay. Look, you, I, I don't know about you. I can't do a list without throwing in something that is near and dear to me. And again, if if I tackled the samurai Western genre that played with that trope, I got to look at the war movies. So war movies, I think, are notorious for you get a band of guys together and they're going off to complete a mission. I Some mean, might call them a band of brothers. Band of brothers, yes. Guns of Navarone. I mean, there's there's so many classics to it. But I mean, you know me, Brad. I'm going to pick something that's offbeat, but I'm also going to pick something that's super cool. So I went with 1987's Eastern Condors with Samuel Young, Young Samuel Hung, Hung Yun yeah. Biao, Joyce Gan Denzi, uh, Yun Hua, who was the villain from Dragons Forever. He's a little skinny guy that's always you know smoking the cigar. 
but look, Kelly's Heroes, Guns and Navarone, I, I think those are those are great films. But Eastern Condors has some amazing action sequences for an 80s Hong Kong film. And the whole story, I mean, it's it's about really, you know, a, a band of Chinese soldiers who hook up with um, a couple of females who are, um, I think they're rebels and they're trying to, well, they're working for the U.S. government to, to find out where this, you know, whole depot of weapons are. And I, I get really fascinated with these films where they take martial arts movies and they try and incorporate it into a modern setting. So mm-hmm. check out Eastern Condors. It's an amazing action film. And I got to tell you, the last 20 minutes alone is some of the best martial arts uh, sequences you're going to see. Agreed. Yeah, that's a fantastic pick. Okay. I knew you were going to have something like that on your on your list. Well, of course. I mean, yes. and if Sammo Hung is going to do a film like that, I, I got to throw it in there. Number one. Are right, you ready for, ready for my number one? Can I, can I tell you what I think your number one is? Sure. Go right ahead. I'm, I know you. And I know science fiction is probably your favorite genre. Yes. I just assumed you would have picked 2016's Rogue One, a Star Wars story. I was going to, but it's not. I, I stayed away from Star Wars. Oh, okay. So I did another sort of, I don't know. It's from 2001. It is written and directed by uh, Miyazaki. It's a Studio Ghibli film. It is Spirited Away. Oh, Okay. Yes. Um, I think so here, here's for me, like I did not grow up on a lot of Walt Disney stuff. Uh, a lot of mine came when I was preteen, um, watching anime and studio Ghibli. Um, so I don't really have a whole lot of reverence for old, um, Walt Disney animated films. Um, I think the first one I actually saw all the way through was Lion King or maybe Aladdin, whatever one of those was first was literally the first Walt Disney film I saw all the way through. So my animation comes from <laughs> Akira and like Studio Ghibli stuff. Um, Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, um, although, I mean, all the Miyazaki stuff is, is, is amazing and needs to be seen. Um, I like this one a lot. Um, obviously, the girl's parents turn into pigs. She's trying to figure out how to turn them back. Uh, is an amazing film. Um, I love it. Um, I'm, I'm still kind of waiting for my son to get a little bit older so he can watch it. But when that day comes, I'm going to, I might shed a tear. Okay. Are you going to be, I got to ask you. So when you introduce your son to a film that like you love, are you the dad that sits down and says, okay, before we watch this, let me give you the entire history. And this person's evolved in et cetera, et cetera. Or do you go, Hey, I want you to, I want you to see this and just have him experience it and then patiently wait to see what their reaction is? Yeah, yeah, that one. Um, you know, because we watch Star Wars, and, you know, there's some parts that he absolutely loves. <laughs> I will admit that episode one is his favorite because of the pod race right now, which I get. I mean, look, Star Wars is for kids, um, and the pod race is actually really exciting. So when it comes to the time where I want to introduce him to a lot of the things that I grew up with, your Indiana Joneses, your Back to the Futures, um, your Lord of the Rings. I just want to kind of let him experience it like I did and just say, you know, this is important to me. It might not be important to you, but uh, just remember it's important to me. So, you know, if it's not, put me down gently. Um, but that's a, like a big part of him growing up is kind of finding what what speaks to him and, and 
even when my daughter gets older too, it's just kind of finding what movie, cause you know, like movies are important to us. Right. And if, if something doesn't speak to you, I don't want to force it, but he seems to be interested in a lot of the same things I am. So I'm not really worried that he's not going to at least give everything that we want to watch a chance. So, and we have a theater in our house. So if I say, Hey, let's go watch something in the theater that gives him an excuse to, you know, sit for two hours and watch something cool. So you are like, I don't know the perfect parent. I'm the parent that will sit like Cameron or angel down and go, look, this is your dad's favorite. Here's why it's important. We'll, we'll do just a little slideshow presentation and I will go through (laughs) why this movie is amazing. And I will threaten them and go, if you don't like this film, you're going to live in a cardboard box down by the river. So that's how they experience my favorites. That's fine. <laughs> to each his own. I Look, I don't criticize people how they parent their kids, man. <laughs> However you make it work. No, I feel bad because uh, a good example is anything Jackie Chan related. I, I will say, now that they're teenagers, I, th- I think they've worked their way through everything Jackie Chan related because I've shown them you know, every film. And it's funny, I can remember, you know, watching something like project a and thinking, okay, they have to love this film. And just out of the corner of my eye, just watching their reaction, et cetera. So luckily none of them had to relocate to a cardboard box down by the river. Cause they like all of, you know, the Jackie Chan movies. But, uh, I, I, I do feel guilty because I pressure them <laughs> into some things and, and angel, especially at this age of, of being an adult, just graduating, you know, she can now tell me, okay, that movie's stupid. And, you know, okay, I got it. I got it. Um, you're number one. My number one. So <clears throat> I had Rogue, I had Rogue <laughs> Puberty's One. Puberty's number one. <laughs> Puberty's number one. Uh, I had Rogue One, the Star Wars story, because I, I I was thinking science fiction or horror, because I think that's a genre that, to me, when you talk about men on a mission, it either comes down to like Western samurai films or war movies. Those are the most common. So for my number one, I was like, okay, what is my favorite I don't know, you, you get a group of guys or gals together and, and they got to go do something. So Rogue One, a Star Wars story was definitely top of the list. The other one that I gravitated to was Blade Two from 2002. Ooh, yes. I, I really like that one, but that has Donnie Yen in it. And if I was going to talk about Eastern Condors with Samuel Hung and Yun Biao, I thought, no, that's that's just too much, right? So this one... I actually think if you were to ask me what is the best, I don't know, men on a men on a mission or women on a mission film, I'm going with Armageddon. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. God, you ruined my whole dramatic. No, I'm going Sorry. with aliens. I'm going with aliens. Okay. I mean the colonial marines. Yeah, but that the Sigourney Weaver performance is fantastic. And the thing I love about Aliens is if you think about all of the characters that are presented and what transpires through the entire film, you get to know everybody on the team. And they're very distinct. And and you end up quoting Bill Paxton probably more than anybody else. And just as much as Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, game over, man. Yeah, and and I I love that script because it gives everybody a chance to shine. And when somebody does die, you kind of feel it because you got to know that character for, even though they may not have had a bunch of screen time like Sigourney's character, I think the writing was smart enough and there was enough enough time given to that character that you kind of connected with them. So yeah, when, being invested in characters is one of the hardest things to do in cinema because you have a limited time and obvious, like with, with 
aliens, there's not just one character. There's a lot. And there to is. Get yeah. Everyone kind of in their spot where they're supposed to be and establish them as a character is, is really tough. And that's why, you know, a lot of times we criticize film as it's like, Oh, I don't even care about these characters. So why should I care what happens to them? Like the inverse of that is aliens. Oh, I agree. And I think it's one of the perfect scripts out there. I mean, we, we talked about big trouble in little China being a perfect film. I think aliens is almost there. It, it's not quite, but man, the, the best thing about this genre is not just the action and the mission that they're going on, et cetera, but it's you as a viewer feeling like you're part of that group and you get to know everybody and you have as much on the line as they do and you connect with everybody. Yeah, we'll get to that, like the conduit character when we talk about the 13th Warrior. Yeah, and, and I think Aliens, what's, what's fantastic about it is your conduit character from that, I, I don't know if you agree with this, I feel like it's Sigourney Weaver because she's the voice of reason within this, within everything else. But what's brilliant about that film is even though you're supposed to relate with the conduit character, all of those sub-characters, you find aspects that you just start, um, you know, Lance Henriksen's Bishop. I, I, you, you just connect to each one of them. So you're not trying to just live through that conduit character, but in some fashion, you find aspects of yourself throughout the other personalities. Yeah, and that's that's an important one with an ensemble cast too. Is you know you're not you might not relate to Sigourney Weaver's character Ripley like a hundred percent, but you have Bishop that you might see parts of you in him, and that sort of makes you invested in the character. And you're like, if that's going to be my sort of my character in this film, I want them to, to make it to the end. Uh, you know, so it automatically gives you that sort of investment. Oh, I agree. So, I mean, that's a great list. I, I didn't know how you were going to tackle this one because this is one of those lists we didn't really give each other rules about. Yeah. So I, I feel like we talked about star Wars and Indiana Jones and all this stuff, you know, the big ones. So I was like, you know, we need to talk about other things. Um, you know, Stand By Me is one of the most important films to me. Um, my mom and I watched Stand By Me all the time when I was growing up. Like when our when I had my first dance at my wedding, Stand By Me was the th- the song that my mom and I danced to. So, oh, wow. you know, it, that movie means a lot to me. So, well, I, I wanted I, to finally get to it. <laughs> I like that we can talk about this subgenre and say it doesn't just pertain to the action genre alone. But if you think about it, you've got, you know, the thriller or the drama with Stand By Me or the comedy with Three Amigos, science fiction. I mean, you can do the war film, but you can also look at Hong Kong action films in the 80s and say, hey, this was also inspired by that. But um, man, that what I'm just I'm kind of proud of us. I'm good picks. Good man. job, buddy. Good pick. This is Friday night, man. We're just, you know, we're in a zone. Friday night. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about this week's film, Brad. So this was your pick. You decided to go with an action film from the 90s, specifically 1999, The 13th Warrior. What what kind of made you throw this one up? So like I said up top, uh, it's written by Michael Crichton. Uh, he did this film. He wrote this film called Jurassic Park. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's pretty popular. I th- it's a small independent film, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, it is also directed by the guy who did Predator. <laughs> <laughs> and like Die Hard 2 or something like that. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so you put those two guys on the poster, obviously. Um, you throw in Antonio Banderas and um, you give me an adventure film. I saw this in the theater 
this is right. So 1999, I would have been 16. And that summer, I think I got my driver's license. So this was like me driving to my friends to the theater literally every weekend. Okay. Um, and we saw this in the theater. I think there was like five people there. Uh, four of them were with us. And, you know, you look at the list of the biggest bombs of all time. And this movie is, is on it. And for, I don't remember like it jumping out to me in, in 1999 that, Oh, they spent a ton of money on this. Um, you know, in hindsight, I think there are some things that are pretty impressive. Um, and the fact that like, I saw this, was it 20? Oh God. A long time ago. <laughs> a long, long time ago. And, uh, I remembered nothing about it. Um, there's a whole Norse part of this film that I had no idea that was coming. Like when Vikings showed up in this movie, I was like Vikings. Okay. So, you know, you got one of the best directors of all time. One of the best writers of all time. I mean, literally every book that that man has wrote or his novella is, you know, been tried to have been adapted to his, to, to a film. I like Antonio Banderas quite a bit. Oh, no, no. Um, You like Antonio Banderas. Antonio Banderas. You got to say it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it just kind of was one of those films that when we were putting together the list, it was on like, Oh, we have to do this. And I just felt like it was time. I mean, they lost a lot of money on this movie. So um, we'll get to the numbers, but it's pretty staggering. Yeah. Honestly, when uh, gosh, what a year ago, well, I, heck we didn't even talk about we're in year two, which is pretty impressive. Oh yeah. Welcome to season two of the, the podcast. Yeah. So, when when we were going through the list, I I knew the films that I liked that had bombed, but I wanted to you know search the internet and find out what were the biggest bombs. Like you said, this movie constantly shows up on lists in terms of the net loss, and I did not see it in the theater. I thought I had, but when I went back and we'll talk about this. When I went back and saw the trailer and then pulled out my DVD, I'm like, oh yeah, this is one of the ones I discovered on home, you know, video. But it, I never equated it to a film that was just this big, disastrous bomb. I just thought it was this 90s action film. But yeah. uh, let, let's get to the numbers. This one's pretty fascinating. So there is a reason why if you go on the internet and search like Hollywood's biggest bombs, this is always showing up in the top 20. Yeah, so initially this is green green lighted is it green lighted green lit it's green lit the budget of this film was 85 million dollars initially initially they yes. required quite a bit of reshooting and retooling of this film um some would say they brought in a new director to kind of finish this film yes um so it, it ballooned so they also lump in promotion of this film and production to give it a nice round number of $160 million. Um, that I've also seen might be a little bit conservative, which is crazy uh, that they would spend that much money on a film that is the only star is Antonio Banderas and a bunch of white uh, Viking looking guys. But anyway, um, it's first weekend at the theater. So you're hoping we spent a lot strong, of money man. on this film. Yeah. We need we need like thirty million to forty million dollars at this opening weekend. Well, they didn't. They got ten million dollars opening weekend. Oh, wow! Um, and the total run for box office 
was 61, almost $62 million. So Ouch. they are writing off about $100 million. That's $100 huge. million. Dollars. Yeah, if you put that in perspective, there have been a lot of big budget movies we've talked about. So, you know, think about something that that cost $160 million to make, and maybe it uh, came back with $160 million. And we'd say, okay, that was a bomb. But, you know, with marketing and stuff like that, they might not have lost $100 million. This thing flat out, $100 million plus marketing, right? Yeah, I've also seen that, like, the total write-off was, like, 129 Wow. So you're looking wow. at somewhere between 100 and $130 million lost on this film. Now, you can get creative with the accounting. We won't get into that, but, you know, they're not losing $130 million. Right, 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 yeah. Crazy, right? Like, crazy. I, it is. It was so to, to me, we'll get into it, but this movie's all wrong when it comes to marketing and the trailer. Again, for season two, we're actually going to talk about the trailers now because <laughs> that's a part of the marketing and whether or not when you go back to look at it, if we think that they did a good job, um, this one is one of the best trailers to discuss. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. So you just talked about the numbers. Total, total bomb. How did it do with the audience or even the critics? Critics were not very happy with this film. Um, one Roger Ebert gave this a one-star review. Um, the critics um, on Rotten Tomatoes now sit at 33%, and the audience at, stick, is at 66%. So double what the critics say, which I'm baffled by 33%. You look at some of the films that are less than like 35, 40, and they're really, really bad. Yeah. Um, I don't want to show my hand too much, but this is not in that league. So like I said, <clears throat> my friends and I went to the theater a lot in August of 1999. One of the films that I say will kind of shed some light on why this film might not have done as well as they wanted. Um, are you ready for these films? Cause they're some awesome ones. And in full disclosure, when you look at 1999 and that year specifically, I, you're going to just talk about some films that came out that year and I'm going to sit here and go, Oh really that year? Cause I can't remember anything. Yeah. There's a film called universal soldier, the return. Oh Have my! You seen that? Yes, I did. <laughs> yes, okay. yes, you did. I did. Yeah. All right, here's the big one. Okay. This one ruled the August month and probably August September. I'm probably even going to say October. So the tail end, movie? tail end of the box summer box office is happening in yes. August. Okay, got it. The Sixth Sense. Oh, which is all anyone saw in August. Oh, that was the that was like the water cooler movie. Like if, yes. if you didn't see the Sixth Sense in '99, you were you were not cool in any social circle. Yeah, so <laughs> we, my friends and I, saw The Sixth Sense, and you know it was one of those moments where you immediately, like we immediately turned right back around and went into the theater. Yeah, and saw it again. We snuck in, but you know we we paid for <laughs> it the first time. Anyway, uh, a future episode, Mystery Men, also released on the same day. Oh, that yeah, man, I remember so. I'm hoping, I don't know how we're going to do this, Brad, but I, I don't know if, if your wife, Natalie has a film that, you know, you love and she absolutely hates mystery men for my marriage is just the film that I feel like if we ever get divorced over something, it might be that one. 
and irreconcilable differences. And it's going to say mystery men next to it. And when we do that film, when, cause we are going to do it. When we do that, I'm going to beg and plead that Tabitha come on the show, uh, to talk about that one because her hate for that film is downright comical. It, it's hilarious. Awesome. Oh, another future episode, the iron giant. Yes. So you could see, the Sixth Sense, Mystery Men, and the Iron Giant all on the same day. I, I, and that, to me, sounds like a wonderful day at the cinema. Oh, and the Thomas Crown Affair. You can see those four <laughs> movies in the same day. That's amazing. Uh, Bowfinger. Remember Bowfinger? I, oh, my. Yes. We just watched that recently. I introduced that to the kids, and everybody was just dying laughing through that whole thing. Yeah, that movie's really good. Um, Detroit Rock City. I Honestly, I own it. I haven't seen it. It's in the two-watch pile. The 13th Warrior comes out the same day as uh, Detroit Rock City. The Ninth Gate, the Johnny Depp yes, film. Yes, saw that. Yep. And The Astronaut's Wife. Saw that one. Round out, rounds out your August 1999 releases. That's a great month, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw, God, I saw so many films that month in the theater. I saw everything but Detroit Rock City, I think. Well, and 13th Warrior. I didn't see that in the theater. Wow. Okay. So can we talk right. about the advertising? So new, new segment. Yeah, the advertising. So this is one of the – so here's how this came about. Most of the time, Brad and I are watching the film at a different day. We might be doing research on a different day. This is something that I immediately texted Brad and said, hey, did you happen to check out the original theatrical trailer for this film? And the reason why I went there is a couple of films that we've talked about recently. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China is a great example. We discuss how the studio or Adventures in Buckaroo Banzai is another great example. The studio really has a tough time from a marketing perspective looking at what they have and trying to sell the general public like, hey, come see our film. And after watching this for the show, I thought, how the heck – in 1999, did they, I don't know, market this thing? And they were, were they going off of a Braveheart vibe or something like that? And when I saw the trailer, I had to text you immediately and go, dude, you need to look at the posters for one, which are atrocious, and just look at sort of the taglines on there. And then secondly, go back and watch this trailer. So Brad, let, let's talk. What do you want to start with? I want to talk about this trailer. I can't hold it in anymore. All right, let's talk about this trailer. Go for it. Holy moly. There is <laughs> monk techno music in the background. Yes. And a narrator basically gives you the plot of the film. But like, so it says like, oh, the, the danger will come without warning. And I'm like, well, that's not true because they only come at the fog. But anyway, there's a lot of things in the trailer that are like completely wrong, but it lays out the plot and it's got this techno music and it is I don't think I've seen a worse trailer. Like, I think this might be the worst trailer I've ever seen. It's terrible. And it's not even close. Yeah. It, and it's that late 90. I can't even remember who the band was. Cause I remember hearing it. It's not the trailer voice guy. It's a different voice. I Are you think. sure it's not the trailer voice guy? Maybe it is. Maybe you're right. I, I think um, it's the trailer voice guy, but when you put the trailer voice guy against, but he doesn't say in a world, but it's, it's close. It's close. It's close. <laughs> it, it, but it throws you off because it's his voice with the monk techno music that, oh, I do. Sounds just like that. Yes. Yeah. It probably sounds just like it, but it throws you off. And they're basically doing this exposition of the film 
And then all of a sudden just throwing you, just throwing you into it and just action scene, action scene, action. I mean, and it doesn't make sense. No, it's, it's terrible. And I, there's no way I saw that trailer and was like, okay, we're going to that. I, I had to have known something else about it or whatever. Or one of my friends is just like, Hey, let's just go see this movie. And I was like, yeah, sure. I got 20 bucks. Let's go. Um, Cause there's no way I would have been like, I want to see that movie. Cause if I saw the trailer before we did this episode, I'd be like, you know what? Maybe, maybe this one isn't for <laughs> us right now. Well, and did you pay attention to the poster artwork or what they were putting out in the theaters? Yeah, even the posters aren't good. Like the boat with the eye behind it, you're like, what are we even doing? Like, yeah, there was that one, or in, or sorry, Antonio Banderas, just his face with a sword, just holding a sword on the cover, and you get these taglines. And I'll try and do it in the trailer voice, uh, I, I guess, trailer okay. voice guy. It's um, excuse me. <clears throat> From the author of Jurassic Park and the director of Die Hard, because that's that's the tagline you see on there. Fear reigns, or an ordinary man, an extraordinary journey. That those were the taglines of the post. Is he a is he a ordinary man? I guess for that time period, maybe I don't know. Like he seemed like a affluent poet esque guy. I don't know. I don't think he was ordinary. Well, so I understand what the studio is going for. They're, they're saying, okay, we got the dude who did Jurassic Park and we got the other dude that did Die Hard. And those were- The Predator. Yeah, whatever. So, <laughs> well, obviously he's not that good. They didn't put the guy from Predator. I know, I know. But Die Hard. So uh, they're really selling that you've got the folks that brought you, you know, the content or the films for Die Hard and Jurassic Park. And it's like, look, if you like those movies- you're going to love this thing that has techno monk music. But my, my favorite thing when they do that is like from the guys who brought you 40 year old virgin comes some weird movie you've never heard of. Yeah. It's Remember when they were doing that for like every movie, every comedy was like, this guy was the executive producer on the hangover from the catering department that worked yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was terrible. This from the lighting department that brought you <laughs> role models comes. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. The trailer was, and what I find fascinating is when I think of films, I don't know, like Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai or Big Trouble in Little China, and you go, okay, that's a that's a just such a mishmash, or Brazil even, and say, all right, I I don't I don't know as a marketing ex- executive how to um, just pinpoint the secret sauce of this story to bring everybody in. I feel like this one was pretty easy. Yeah, and it's a fish out of water. It it is, and it's a it it's a I don't know dramatic action film, and I think what's funny is you sent me a trailer that was actually really good, and I go wow that wasn't the trailer I watched, and I did a little research and I go oh, that that was a fan edit trailer, so people on the internet went back and made better trailers for this film than what the studio was paying like some guy like two hundred million to to put this garbage together. Yeah, it. Could you imagine? Could you imagine paying a firm to watch your film and to slice together a trailer, and they bring that back? And you're like, well, we already spent this much money. We can't do another one, so let's just put it out there. Yeah, twelve-year-old uh, <laughs> could have done better, I think. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the folks that were behind the camera and in front of the camera. Let, let's start with the directors and, and the creative talent. 
we've talked about John McTiernan before. So obviously he created uh, Die Hard, one of the greatest action films ever. Some other movie like Predator. Um, mm -hmm. We talked to... 1993 is the last action hero, which so he also directed the the Thomas Crown Affair. Yes, so he had two films come out on the same day. Yeah, he did. So we talked about 93 is the last action and hero. Rollerball. <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> we we <throat> we barely barely just a smidgen said it's kind of a bomb. But you and I both this year even went back and bought the 4K release in the Last Action Hero. Um, but if, if you look at what he was doing around this time frame, I think the directing and like the directing is not the problem in last section hero. I agree. Yes. It's the script. I, I yes, very much. So 93 does last action hero follows it up with Die Hard of the vengeance in 95, which is a fantastic film. Like you said, this year he had this film, Thomas crown affair, and then f follows this one up with rollerball in 2002. So Man, McTiernan is is one of those folks that you look at his filmography and he has hit some home runs, but there's no denying he has a couple of clunkers in there. And the interesting thing about this film, we'll talk about it here in a few minutes, is if you go and do some research, John McTiernan is credited as the director, but a lot of folks will come back and say that Michael Crichton is also an uncredited director because of things that happen behind the scenes. So before we talk about Michael Crichton, screenplay is by William Wisher Jr., Warren Lewis, and the film is based on a book by Michael Crichton called Eaters of the Dead. Have you read the book? Which I, I have not. It's a novella. Um, now, I'm going to say something, some words, and you're going to say either I'm right or, right or wrong. Okay. Is this sort of tentatively a retelling of Beowulf? You are correct. Okay. Yes. So it's a novel about a 10th century Muslim who travels with a group of Vikings to their settlement. So, so the book eaters of the dead is narrated as a scientific commentary on an old manuscript and two sources. So what they did is the first three chapters retell Ahmed Ibn Fadlan's personal account as he journeys North and his experiences encountering the Rus and, and that person is a historical character. Okay. Okay. Um, and then you get, um, the, the rest of the book is like you said, it's based upon the story of Beowulf accumulating in a battle with the mist monsters and Vendel, a relic group of Neanderthals. So eaters of the dead is really this hybrid story of history and fiction and like I said, Ahmad was a 10th century Muslim traveler famous for his account of his travels as a member of an embassy and his writings are inspiration for the first part of the story. So they're taking that centralized character and saying, okay, that's the conduit um, of the adventure as you as a viewer, but we're really retelling Beowulf. And if you read some stories about it, Crichton gets in sort of an academic, I don't know, discussion or debate with somebody over Beowulf. Some guy says, man, Beowulf is just a boring story. Crichton says, no, it's it's really exciting. And especially if you put it in a particular context. So there are some quotes out there saying Crichton says. I, I, I read some things where he was like, if, if the Beowulf story was true, this would be kind of how I foresee it happening in the real world. Um, you know, Grindel is not some mythical creature. Right. He's just some guy. And the Grindel's 
mother or whatever. I forget the story of Beowulf is, you know, just another person. So, you know, we could kind of put this story in real, the real world and not make it so fantastical. Yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right. And what's funny is we've talked about Michael Crichton, but let's talk about Michael Crichton for a second. So let's talk about him. Yeah. 1942 to 2008. So he, he has passed. He's an American author and filmmaker. So you touched on his novels, but I mean, this guy's a pure Renaissance man. What's fascinating is he received an MD from Harvard medical school in 1969, but decided not to practice medicine. (laughs) So and and when you're talking, he did all right. I think he did all right for himself. Yeah, he did good. So if, if you're talking about culture, and not just films, but think about it for a second. And and you've touched on this from novels. He did the Andromeda Strain from 1969, Terminal Man, The Great Train Robbery, Congo, which I think will be on our show at some point. The Jurassic Ugly, ugly Gorilla. Yes. Amy. Jurassic Park, Rising Sun, Disclosure, The Lost World, Airframe, Timeline, Prey. State of Fear next. Those those were a lot of, you know, just a sample of the books that he wrote that made a lot of money. Then if you think about TV, so another channel or medium, he's the creator of ER. I keep forgetting this. He's the creator yeah, he of wrote, ER, yeah, ER. That ran from 1994 to 2009. And then, okay, he's not done. He's a director. He directed Pursuit in 1972, Westworld in 1973, Coma in 1978, The Great Train Robbery in 78, which was based off his book, Looker in 81, which I don't know if you've ever seen that film with Albert I Finney. I have not. It's an interesting, I, I know you're a big sci-fi guy. I, If you like 80s sci-fi, check that one out. It, okay. It's cool. Um, one of my favorites from 84, Runaway with Runaway. Tom Selleck. Yeah. Yes. Physical Evidence in 89, and then The 13th Warrior. He's an uncredited director, and he doesn't stop there. He's written a ton of screenplays. So he did Westworld, which he also directed, Coma, same thing, Great Train Robbery, Looker, Runaway. He did the screenplay for Jurassic Park in 93 and worked with Steven Spielberg on that one. Rising Sun in 93. This one totally floored me because I totally forgot about it. In 1996, he did the screenplay for Twister. So (laughs) I just watched Twister maybe three months ago and it's like written by Michael Crichton. You're like, holy crap. Yeah, (laughs) I didn't expect that. I mean, that's the cool thing about him. I mean, he, he... he really is the definition of a Renaissance guy. I He's mean, one of the most important peoples to modern cinema, like period, period. I, I agree. Modern cinema and, and even literature to a certain degree. I mean, a yeah, lot, yeah. a lot of people, you know, talk Stephen King, but I would, I would put Crichton in the, in, you know, in the same house or even discussion as Stephen King. Um, going back to 13th Warrior. I mean, Stephen King's never had anything bigger than Jurassic Park. Like Jurassic Park was one of yeah. the biggest things that happened to the entire world. No, I agree with you there. Uh, franchise wise, definitely. No. So, and and we'll talk about this, but the music that's credited to the film that we watched is Jerry Goldsmith. Cinematography is Pete Menzies Jr. And let's talk about the cast real quick. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna. This is gonna be quick. <laughs> this is gonna be quick. So at the end of the day, we're really talking about Antonio Banderas. I mean, we can't say his name without saying it, like Antonio Banderas, yes. right? Uh, he is the central character, Ahmed Ibn. Fodlin. And and for those not familiar with the film or even Antonio Banderas, this is a Spanish actor, director, producer, and singer playing a Muslim character. So keep that in mind. Yes. Now, he is probably – there's only one other person you might recognize in this film, but this is the guy you recognize in the movie. 
And if you think about what Antonio Banderas was doing about this time in his career, I, I think he really, I mean, he's, he did a lot of films, but he really came on the scene with 1994's Interview with the Vampire. Yes. So correct. he does that, Miami Rhapsody in 95, which is a fantastic movie. Another film comes out in 95, Desperado. It's a big hit. So now he's an action star. He, <laughs> but that's not the only thing he had in 95. 95, the guy's busy. He does Miami Rhapsody, Desperado, Four Rooms, Assassins. Tarantino. <clears throat> yeah, Tarantino. That's Assassins was uh, Sylvester Stallone. Never Talked to Strangers in 95 and Too Much in 95. In 96, he does Evita. 98, Mask of Zorro. 99, he has three films coming out. 13th Warrior, White River Kid, Play to the Bone. This guy is acting his butt off in the 90s and really taking advantage of the notoriety and everything that he gained, I think, from the start of Interview with the Vampire in 94. Uh, we'll go through everybody else. I mean, I'm, I mean, <laughs> Diane Venora as as Queen Welu. Uh, I only knew her from two films, FX and 86 and Heat in 1995. Yep, she's Al Pacino's girlfriend in that film. She That's has right. to make out with him. That's the grossest part of any film I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. The opening shot of Al Pacino and her laying in bed, and then he just starts making out with her. And she also smokes in bed, which I like in yeah, no. that's a big no. no. Smoking in bed would be no, a no-no. No. Anyway, um, yes. <laughs> Vladimir Kulich as Bolivif, the leader. So we'll just call him the leader because that name's really hard, even for me. Um, <laughs> he's done, surprisingly or not, a bunch of TV shows that involve Vikings. But I do remember... Ironically, not the show Vikings. Not the show Vikings. I do remember him as one of the bad guys in 2014's The Equalizer. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he is in yep. that. Yep. Um, so outside of Antonio Banderas, the other person that you will recognize is Omar Sharif as Michelsdek. So. Sure. Yes. Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago. That's where most people will know him from. I will know him from the classic, the absolute just best 80s film, Top Secret from 1984. Oh, yes. Okay. Val Kilmer's first film. Yes. Uh, confession time, Brad. I've never seen Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, add you, you corrected your one. So, we're, we're going to have to knock these out. I'm going to have to go and see Gone with the Wind at some point in time. Well, and what's Four funny, hours. What's funny Four is hours. that whole uh, Columbia box set 4K thing where I'm like. Has, has Lawrence of Arabia. Has Lawrence of Arabia in there. So I'm going to go correct that one at some point. But yeah, that's uh, that's everybody that I think we'll probably talk about in front yeah. of the camera. But yeah, that you know, I lost some street credit from that one. All right. So let's talk about the production real quick before we get into our thoughts on the film. So the production began in 1997. It was originally titled Eaters of the Dead based off the book. Now you talked about the budget, right? How big it's you know, so it started what eighty million or so? Eighty five. Eighty five. Yeah. Okay. So the film went through several re edits after a test screening that did not react well to the initial cut. As a matter of fact, if you talk to anybody, we've had a lot of those lately. Like yes. the last five five episodes, like they've all been like uh, these tested really poorly. Yeah, that that's kind of a big deal. And and what's funny, I love this is if you hear anybody describe the test screening and what was shown to the public everybody comes back and says the film was deemed unwatchable during the initial test screening which i'm really curious about that yeah i'd love to see like they need to release like 
the when they just release films, just like okay, here's the test screenings that we did. And oh, I would love that. I would love if you know Shout Factory, Criterion, somebody would go look. We got the test screening, and you can judge for yourself. But I'm I am so fascinated with these test screenings, and then what you end up with, right? So it's disastrous. Studios like, oh my god, what are we gonna do? We spent eighty five million. Everybody's like, dude, we this is unwatchable. That's the term they use. So Crichton took over as director due to the poor test screenings and then said, okay, we got to push this release date back to a year. We got to do some re-edits, reshoots, and everything else. So the film was recut. A new ending was added. And this was interesting. They turned around and said, the score doesn't work either, so we're going to rescore the thing. So Graham Revell's original score was replaced with Jerry Goldsmith as composer, so that's the soundtrack we get today. And then they turned around and said, we can't use the Eaters of the Dead title. We're going to change the title to the 13th Warrior. Out of all the research, this is my favorite. So the outcome of the film's production disappointed Omar Sharif. Now, Omar Sharif's in Lawrence of Arabia. Doctor, yeah, I mean, said, yeah, he's like, you know, everybody wants, acting wise, you want to be Omar Sharif from Lawrence of Arabia. So I heard, I haven't seen it. I don't know. Um, so Omar Sharif, he he was so disappointed, he temporarily retired from film acting. Yep, he hung up the cleats after this one. And didn't take a role until 2003. But this is the quote. I love this. Oh, is it the money quote? Oh, yeah, I love this. Okay, okay. so this is Omar Sharif. Uh, and I can't do an Omar Sharif. Don't, do, don't, don't. Yeah, don't. I'm not. I'm <laughs> That'd not. be offensive. I, you know what? After I see Lawrence of Arabia, I might be able to do it. But let's just say I can't do it right now. Yeah. All right, Omar Sharif. After my small role in the 13th Warrior, I said to myself, let us stop this nonsense. These meal tickets that we do because it pays well. I thought, unless I find a stupendous film that I love and that makes me want to leave home to do, I will stop. Bad pictures are very humiliating. I was really sick. It is terrifying to have to do the dialogue from bad scripts to face a director who does not know what he is doing in a film so bad that is not even worth exploring. Wow. That's a bit harsh for this film. And he's only in the movie for like 10 minutes. Yeah. Like he was on set for maybe four days. 10 minutes. And I mean, talk about a big middle finger to everybody. Yeah. Like chill out, dude. You weren't, you weren't getting in the mud and all that stuff. Like you had it easy. Yeah, I agree. He's basically a, he's an interpreter. So shut up. How do you feel, Brad? Uh, no, I'm just saying, like, he he literally was not around enough to know how, if the director could direct or not. Like, yeah, I agree. Get over yourself. Okay. So that's everything that went on behind the scenes, you know, in front of the camera, behind the camera, the box office, et cetera. I'm super curious about your thoughts on this one, Brad. So let's get into it. This is your pick. We're talking about a 90s action film, Omar Sharif, Antonio Banderas. What are, what are your thoughts on 13th Warrior? So this film's got a lot of things that I love in it, and I will list some for you, Troy. Okay, I like that. Before the 20-minute mark, the title of the film is spoken by a character. I love when the when someone says the title of a film in the film. The guy um, says, you are the 13th Warrior. Do you I like that it. more than your physical title thing you talked about when we talked about yeah, Livewire? I, I don't know, man. I They're both pretty awesome. Okay. I feel like the physical title screen doesn't happen enough. Um I love when an oracle comes in and throws bones on the floor to help kind of predict what's going to happen. You have really low standards <laughs> yeah. in terms of what uh, is just, okay, go ahead. Yeah. 
And I love, uh, you know, going into or getting the team together to go fight some evil. Look, this film is not this. This film is about three inches deep, right? It, there's there's not a whole lot. That's the beginning generous. of the yeah. movie literally has a five minute opening where it has to exposit so much like dialogue to you about what is going on and why Antonio Banderas's character is in the spot that he's in, which I don't feel like matters at all. Like you could open the movie on him just being on that shore and the film works just as well. Like it does not need that expository stuff at the beginning. I think that's really bad, but I will say, I think this film is a gym. (laughs) It's an absolute fun thrill ride. That's, you know, it, once they kind of go and the characters start interacting with each other, like we were talking about Ghostbusters last week, like just how fun it is to be with those characters. Like I had fun being around these guys and them at first giving Antonio Banderas's character a really hard time and then slowly sort of letting him into their group and letting like all their cultural differences aside kind of become a part of them and then becoming a part of him. Um, I think it like works really naturally. And like, I've been around traveling baseball teams and sports teams all my life. When you have someone who's, you know, maybe from a different city or something and you all know each other and you're kind of welcoming in, you know, you give them a hard time. And then once they kind of give it back to you and you, you know, you can just, you know, bust balls essentially. That's what kind of they do in this movie. And it's just, it works for me. Um, I have a lot of gripes about the film, but at the end of the day, like I think this is a really fun, mil- a fun movie, and it 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 strangely works um, on a lot of levels. I think some of the fight scenes are dark and they hide a lot of the cool set pieces, um, but for the most part, like this hundred you know, hundred minute runtime goes really fast. I really dig the climax of this film. I like this movie a lot. Like I, again, they had Norse Vikings in this movie and I was like, okay, I am in like, I don't know about you, but I've played the new Assassin's Creed Valhalla for way too long and still play it. Um, So like I am in the Norse stuff. Like I like the Norse. Um, This one is a little bit, like we said, grounded in reality. Like they talk about the fire worm, which turns out not to be, you know, a real worm. It just works for me. I, I, really can see the flaws in it, but I look past all of them. Okay. So we, I don't know. We talked about the genre and I went off on, I don't know, a little bit of a tangent on why I love this genre. And the best thing about it is you get your main character, but it's the characters behind that main character that you just end up falling in love with. So they don't get a lot of screen time, but it's the personalities that come through and everything else. So can we talk about the 13th Warriors for a second? Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about Bullvine. So, so we get Antonio Banderas. He's the 13th Warrior, right? Then He's you the get titular the, 13th Warrior, yeah. yes. So he is, and, and I like the term that you used, which is he's, he's the conduit for the viewer. So you are seeing things through his perspective, right? So you latch on to him. Yeah, most of the time, and to, for people to kind of get some context, most of the time you can, the conduit of the movie for the audience is in every scene of the movie. Yes. Because if they were not in a scene, the audience would feel like they are not a part of the movie anymore, 
which right. you know you think about it it's weird but when a when a film has a character in a in every scene like that is the audience yes so you get him and you got the other 12 warriors so here are the other 12 warriors you have the leader white guy right? <laughs> and white guy he's, he's a big white guy uh, and then another white guy yeah he's supposed to be the beowulf character right bullvi bullvi right um and then the next warrior is the joyous so he's the guy kind of cracking jokes keeps calling he's little brother he keeps calling antonio banderas little brother mm-hmm. you got the superstitious char- he's a great character he's fun he's fun you get yes. the superstitious the musician the archer mm-hmm. the writer the wise the fat the silent the boy the quarrelsome and the dower those, those, okay. those are your warriors there is I, the silent the guy the like the the guy who like sniffs out tracks and stuff like rides the like <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't know Look, we'll say, yes. I, i'm just saying I, I would not have been able to pick out any of these in the film except for the leader and antonio sorry antonio banderas uh maybe the joyous guy because he's a lot of fun mm-hmm. and i i would know the archer guy because he's doing the archer stuff so he's climbing trees, shooting arrows, et cetera. Okay, that's the guy I was talking about. I thought maybe he was the silent, but he's the archer. I don't know. I'm assuming okay, he's sure. the archer guy because he's doing archery stuff, right? Um, but it's just a bunch of dudes. Uh, so this this kind of feels like a Cliff Notes version of a swashbuckling action film. And you get Ahmad's backstory in the first five minutes of the film, just like you said. It's Here's your exposition. I, Too it much. Doesn't, it doesn't add anything from a character doesn't development. Add anything. Because it, it doesn't play he's, out to anything, right? He's, he essentially got eyes for another man's woman, and they say, he hey, booted. you're going to be an ambassador, so get out. Yeah. So you get him. He's thrown into this, like, 80s heavy metal hairband group. I mean, it's a bunch of more big white guys, right? And they're chasing after a bunch of guys dressed up as bears. That's – there you go. That's your movie. Um, the – the plot is super simplistic. It, it's a band of dudes to go save a village. Mm-hmm. There is zero, I mean, zero character development. Zero. Zero. Negative, even. There might be negative character development, <laughs> if that's possible. Um, and, and really, at the core of it, it moves from one action set piece to the next. And what happens in between is camaraderie between... Antonio Banderas and a bunch of white dudes, big Viking guys, right? Yep. And this is going to sound like a slam. It's not. So this is not a slam. It's not, or it's not meant to be. And I've used this analogy before. It it is kind of like the always save brand. So that very generic brand that you always find, maybe Dollar General, something of like that. It is the always save brand of Viking or Brave Heartish movies. However, I I think it's enjoyable. But I'm going to forget everything about it in six months because I've seen this film before. And while I'm watching it, I felt like I was watching it for the first time. Yeah. I, I mean, 22 years is a long time. But to remember that like Norse mythology was in this movie, I think that's like a big thing to forget. I don't uh, remember anything. So you might be right. Yeah. You I, might be right. Yeah. I don't remember it. So, and, you know, again, I had a lot of fun watching it. I, I actually enjoyed myself it's kind of thrilling like there's some tense moments to it there really are now it doesn't have the tension go out 
you know, through the entire runtime. But man, there's some great sequences in it. But I can, I would also be the first to admit, six months from now, if you're like, you want to watch Thirteenth Warrior, dude, I haven't watched that in like 20 years. Let's <laughs> let's watch that again. Sure, why not? And I swear, well, I hope you remember we did an episode on it. I yeah. I don't know. I mean, I've killed a lot of brain cells, obviously with with you know all the beers and everything that I've tried in Maryland. But um, yeah, I don't know. And and again, I don't mean that as a slam. It's super enjoyable. You can put it on it. It has a fantastic pace, but you know, it's, it is super forgettable. It's nothing that is going to challenge action cinema or bring something new to it. No, it doesn't. It definitely does not bring anything new to the table. Um, it borrows heavily from those nineties sort of epics that we were used to. Um, you know, and it doesn't, you know, uh, gladiator comes out after this and you're like, Oh, okay. That is you know, that is a grand sort of adventure film. This is like pedestrian compared to that, um, compared to like Braveheart. It's like, no scale is all wrong, but they spent so much money on this. Um, I want to talk to you about, um, so it takes a while for the first action scene to start. And my big gripe with the action that's, in the beginning of this film is it's way too dark. At first I was like, wait a minute. Is my, is there something wrong with my TV? Like, am I doing is like, it was so dark that I couldn't see. And I'm like, they waited, they made me wait a half an hour for action. And then I can't see anything what's happening. And I'm like, I understand why, because they wanted to kind of keep the mystery around the bear men. You know, they wanted to keep that shrouded, but that's the one thing for me. I'm like, come on, dude. Like this is an action movie. Show me the action. Don't, if you're going to make me wait a half an hour, that first set piece better be good. And it's like, Oh, it's just in the dark. So let's, let's talk about what is the first action scene. Are you, are you referring to the first battle in the great hall when they're sort of pretending to be asleep? Asleep. Yes. Okay. Yes. I, I agree with you. It was a little bit hard. I don't know if it was the lighting as much as I'll, I'll give you this. Yes, the lighting played into it. I thought it was pretty tense. I, I really like the setup to where all their eyes are opening, they're fake snoring. I thought it was a fantastic setup. Uh, even the little dialogue and exchange that the one character, the Joyous, has with um, our, our main hero. It's like, I'm not a warrior. It's like, you will be or whatever. Yeah, it's like, get ready for it. You got to be now. Yeah. Um, and I like that Antonio Banderas is sort of taken out of it a little bit early. I mean, he he tries to fight. He's not effective with the sword that they gave him. And uh, what the other thing I liked about it is some of the 13th warriors just die in that first skirmish, which surprised yeah. me. I, well, does it? Because you know, like, oh, there's 13 people on a mission. Half of those people aren't going to make it, maybe even more, because we have a high body count. Yeah, but out of the first battle, that did surprise me a little bit. But you have to show that these people that they're fighting are menacing yes. and are a threat. No, no, no. And, and there I think has it, to be some sort of sacrificial characters. Yeah, I'm not complaining. I, I liked yeah. it. I, I thought that played into it really well. Um, I actually thought some of the biggest problems with that first one isn't just the lighting, but it again, it's with American action films. It's usually the editing and even where the camera is placed in terms of 
you know, medium shot to close up to the long shot. Up, yeah. yeah it's so way, it's way too close. Yeah. But it's not horrible. I, it, when you get some sequences that are occurring with, you know, some sword play, et cetera, it works. It, it is incredibly gruesome in some spots. Yes. Which is another point I wanted to bring up is they spent so much money on this film and this is gruesome. Yeah. Like there is like, kid carcass in this movie it feels like like it, there's a lot of stuff uh like people's guts hanging out and all i mean there is no less than like five decapitations in this movie no i agree so let, let's stay on this thread of the action sequences so the, the big first one is the battle in the great hall that's followed up with the night battle so it's them defending the village against the fire uh, Again, the fireworm the ger- uh, really, the dragon really dark yes and the horsemen I got to say this, even, well, it was really dark, but man, the fire coming down the hill and some of the lighting backdrop to uh, the wooden fortress and what was going on, it, it really looked eerie, but yet beautiful. Yeah. And, and that's one of those moments where you're like, oh, they spent some money on this film because yeah, that's where the budget is like practical sets. Um, I don't think they did any sort of like CGI, like let's fill in these characters with, you know, some, some fake CGI characters. I think there's literally 250 people in bear costumes running down a hill. Uh, I agree. And yeah. it was intense. It, it was super intense. I, I found that that battle really felt like those um, protagonists were trying to survive. It, it yep. wasn't, it wasn't that they were going to defeat these creatures out of the mist or these bear people that battle was all about, can they survive this attack? And it, it felt like the best elements of something like the third red line or, you know, saving private Ryan or something of that nature. They really captured that tension. And again, you have more of the warriors dying, but I I don't know about you at that point. I'm like, Oh my gosh, there's no way that they can defeat these folks at all. Yeah. I mean, just by this year, volume of of the enemy there's so many of them yeah um, and you know and we're, we're led to believe at the beginning that they don't necessarily know if they're men or not or what they are um we'll get to we'll get to fig- i want to talk about how they figure out where to go for the hideout um, yeah because that logical jump is pretty comical it, it is but that battle leads to the next sequence and we'll we'll talk about you know, the plot and the story structure, but the next battle sequence really is the infiltration of the cave of the Vendel, right? Yeah. Which again, given that you just saw this epic battle play out on the battlefield with 200 and some odd guys storming with torches, it's very gruesome. It's very tense. Then your tension changes and it's not just about survival. Now it's about infiltration. Yeah. It's a sneaking mission now. Absolutely. And I, I love that. And we'll talk about the set design too here in a minute. The only, I, I would say, action set piece. Now, you, I think, early on in the podcast described it as exciting. But when you talk about that final battle in the rain, and specifically, um, <laughs> you've got your leader and the, the Vendel warlord, right, going at it. Most of that sequence is in slow motion, done in the rain. It's the only battle that I thought was kind of lacking tension, 
even after the buildup of this sort of inspirational Viking prayer that they all recite. Yeah. And again, I don't, here's the thing. I appreciate that each battle has a different feel to it. They mm-hmm. didn't do the same thing over and over. Yeah. There's like four, would you say there's like four battle set pieces? Yeah. I, 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 that yeah. sounds about right. And and I'm counting the infiltration and everything that yeah. kind of yeah. goes down as one of those. And and I don't know what it is, but that that last one it looked great. And it's the one that's outside, and like you can see the best. You see everything, but it's also the one that I think lacked tension in comparison to the others. I, I guess I agree. Like there was no part of me that thought the the warlord, you know, the bear warlord was not going to be defeated by. At that point, you knew it was going to be Bovi or. Antonio Banderas's character. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I never thought it was going to be in Antonio Banderas, but I don't know. I, I was so impressed with everything leading up to that. And maybe I was just on this high because that whole infiltration sequence of then going to the cave, taking on, you know, uh, all of the men or creatures and then him taking out the, I, would, would you call her a witch or the mother of the yeah. Vendol or yeah, the weather? The, yeah. Yeah. And just how they have to get out of that cave, it it really was pretty exciting. And then to switch to sort of a slow motion battle sequence, it I don't know that that change in pace. I I appreciate that it's different, but I don't know if that there was something lacking there. But you know, from from a tangible perspective, I can't tell you what was lacking. I still appreciated yeah. it. I just it wasn't as tense because it doesn't bother me. But I can't tell you why. It doesn't bother me. It's just <laughs> no, that's like, cool. I guess it's just like a preference thing. Like, yeah, it was fine. Yeah. Well, and you touched on this. I think what helps in all of the action sequences is really the sets and the environment and the production design. The, dude, if you want to know where all that money went, it went into the production design. It is amazing. They are building some things out of wood in this movie. Absolutely. This movie. The Great Hall and the village surrounding it is an amazing set piece. Uh, and, and I'm sitting there thinking, I, I want the whole special edition of how they built everything. Like, I want to see behind the scenes of what was the construction of all that stuff. I'm like, well, some of me is like, I wonder if they borrowed a lot of the set pieces for like the Lord of the Rings. Like, did they buy them off of? Cause a lot of these like, look like, oh, that could just be in the part of, you know, that's the writers of Rohan. Like they have that. You yeah. Know? Well, and the other thing that was impressive is when you go into the forest sequences, they don't spend as much time in the forest as they do within the great hall in the village, but even the sets that they built within the forest for the farmer, um, and even, you know, the sets leading into the cave, those are really detailed. And you can tell that there was a lot of money that went in just to, to those structures. Yeah. A lot of set dressing for real. Yeah. In this, in the cave, super creepy. I mean, that hall of bones, Holy cow. It was, it, it's so cool. I mean, if you if you want a Dungeons and Dragons moment, and that was it, man. <laughs> I was gonna say the descent. Remember the part in the yes. descent? Oh, yeah. yeah. And this this feels kind of like a Viking version of the descent to a certain degree for that that portion of the film. Um, which here's here's the other thing that I loved about the film. It it dabbles with a horror aesthetic throughout the film. So you touched on the gore. So in the beginning, you say you see him, um, the leader, kind of slash his brother open at dinner because they have an argument over who's going to you know take over, and that slash mark is super gory. But 
there's heads he chopped off. He opens that guy up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, we talked about the the cave sequence, but even on top of the cave sequence, but the the mother of of the Vendel, she's got all these heads displayed in the lair on I don't know these these tree vines or something of that. I mean, that's super creepy. And um, you, you get the butchered family. I mean, leading up to everything, really, the first action sequences you're seeing. Oh yes. That the arm falls off and like, yeah, the guts are hanging out. Well, just that kid running through, you know, the open, uh, plains covered in blood and everything was crazy. Yeah. I mean, the novella is called eaters of the dead. I mean, these are cannibal people. So that's where that comes from. I mean, they're, they're eating the dead. Yeah. Well, they're, they're these fiends who come through the mist. They kill everybody. They take the human heads, they eat people and they even pick up their fallen, so they don't leave anybody behind from a corpse perspective. That horror aesthetic really works well in this film. Yeah, it does until they. All right, I'm just going to go ahead and talk about this part because yeah, it's so dumb. Yeah, uh, the fact that they say, "Well, they dress like bears, and where do bears sleep?" And the guy goes, "A cave." I'm like, "Well, we got to find a cave." I'm like, oh, oh, "Okay, like that's that's how we logic our way into let's go look for a cave." Like. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, Bruce Wayne, but he, he, he dresses as a bat, but at night he sleeps as, you know, he lays his head down in a bed. Yeah. Mansion. What look, it's, it's folks who eat people who think they're bears, who dress like bears and live in a cave like bears. So if if you're going to stick to that, I guess motif, you're going to go for it. Right. They might have like one of those, what those sleep number beds. You don't know. They could. <laughs> I guess. I, I, I didn't, I wasn't so bothered with that because at this point I kind of know what I'm watching in the middle of it. Because like you said, that explanation comes up a little bit towards the, the halfway mark towards the end portion. Yeah. You're getting right into that infiltration uh, set piece, which is, which is fantastic. Them having to, you know, grab the rope, swing through the waterfall and stay quiet. I, I loved all of that. But by that point, I don't, I don't know how you felt by that point. You're either, you either like this film or you don't. Yeah. 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 You, you know, way before that part, whether or not you're on board with this thing. So it, it ultimately, it doesn't bother me because it gets them to the cave. It's just when you think about, like, if you stop and think about this film at all, you're like, wait a minute. Okay. Uh, you know, like looking back, you're like, okay, the, the first five minutes we don't need that weird, you know, part with them explaining how to get to the cave. That's weird. Uh, you know, all, all this sort of deal. Like if you, if you ever stop and think about this thing, like it's a house of cards and um, that's, a, that's you know, a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it, but it doesn't give you a chance to do that. No. And, and that's the thing. It's like, you're, your foot's on the gas and you really don't have time to think about, you know, all the, all the plot holes that you could drive a truck through. So do you think from, I don't know, I, I, gosh, of all the movies we talked about, this is the one I really, really want to see that initial cut or whatever that version was that McTiernan that said one? the test screening, because I'm wondering if Crichton looked at this and said what everybody had a problem with was, all of the filler character development, the world building, et cetera. And so to save the film, they kind of have to say, all right, to your point, I love that analogy. You know, the plot, the script, the world is built on a house of cards. So when you recognize that as a fault within your story, 
do you then go through from an editing uh, process and everything else and say, make this a sleek action film, concentrate on the visceral portions of it and push your viewer and your audience to the finish line so that way they gloss over the facts that, you know, hey, the, the story is a house of cards. And and, and, pro- and that's probably the best. Like if this movie was two hours long, like you're looking at something that probably doesn't flow as well. And it's yeah. like at that point in time, you're looking at your watch. And you're like, okay, like it's been 15 minutes since we had a battle. Like we need to hurry this up. Like if, if this film goes longer than five to 10 minutes without some swords clanging together, you're in trouble. Well, and but even then, the battles, I thought, had the right time allotment to it. They, yeah, they weren't too short. They weren't long. too long. It, yeah. it just fit. There was there's enough tension in there to see what was going on. And even the night battle, to your point, if you were actually thinking about, um, I don't know, from a logistics standpoint, you have these 200, 300 guys standing outside this village. They broke in. They're wreaking havoc. And then in the midst of it all, somebody blows a horn and they all leave logistically you're like why didn't they just finish it they clearly could have won at that point they clearly could have won but for your characters and the ones you're relating to it's all about survival and the fact that they leave you're like oh my gosh thank god because we weren't going to last very much longer yeah yeah Uh, (laughs) again let's uh just keep going just keep going (laughs) okay well can we talk about the performance sorry I was going to say performances, but it really should be performance. <laughs> One. Yeah. One. Um, yeah, go ahead. I mean, Antonio Banderas is great. Uh, I wish he wasn't playing an Arab guy as a Spanish man, uh, but that's okay. I mean, put that aside. Okay. It's 1999. We did things a little bit differently. Oh, yeah, we did. We were, before we were woke. Uh, was, was he trying to do an accent? I don't know. Because I was parts heard, I felt like he was. Yeah, and then I had always heard that he couldn't speak English the first bunch of roles that he had, so he just was imitating other people, but I don't know if that's true or not. But I like Antonio Banderas. I think he's really good in this movie. Um, Sometimes it'll buy him as like this meek character um, because they're like, he's telling people he's not a warrior. Yeah. But as soon as he gets the sword to his liking, he is a killing machine. Yes, he's very good. So it doesn't really add up. It's like I'm not a warrior, but I'm like, look, bro, I've seen you. Ho- I've seen you ride that horse. I've seen you handle that sword. You can do some things. You might not think you're a warrior, but you're a warrior. Uh, you're not like the ultimate warriors, like these Vikings, but you're not some guy who's gonna like cower in a corner. You know, he has good chemistry with the other characters, and I think that's all that really matters. Like he fits in with all those other guys. Um, and you know, obviously he stands out Yeah, because yes, he stands out. Um, <laughs> but he also fits in. So, you know, I, it's a good chemistry and that's what you need in this, these sort of, let's get the group of guys together on, to go on a mission. No, I agree. I mean, I think he's really good at being the naive and confused warrior because you, your phrase of he's, he's the conduit to the viewer. It's perfect. And and he pulls that off. It, yeah. It, like there's even the part where he's listening to, cause you know, at the beginning of this film, it's all subtitled for the Vikings. Right. And then he, as the conduit for the audience learns their language and therefore the kind of the subtitles can go away. Um, I've always seen that like a few different times in films 
um, which I kind of like that conceit. You either I love have this. to have a scene. Yeah. You either have to have a scene that does that, or they all speak English. Yeah, and like I love that transition. Something. It's really yeah. how they handle that sequence of translation. Him learning, and they move from two dialects into okay, we're speaking English, but you as the conduit are okay. I'm understanding what they're saying now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think the only other film I remember that do remember. Uh, yeah, of course you, you are going to say yes. Is uh, Valkyrie? Yes. Yeah, they did that. <laughs> yeah, there's like absolutely. That part where there's the German, and then it slowly turns to English, and you're like, okay, like I, I think you have to either do that or not at all. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like no, if you start you're right. In German yeah, and you want to have an English film, you you got to either address it or you don't even touch it. No, I agree. I, I'll tell you this. So the the best example I can think of it. It's not a true action scene the way that we talked about it, but I'm thinking about when the Joyous sort of takes on one of the King's men to kind of um, keep the son sort of on his toes, but he challenges one of the guys to a fight. The big guy, yeah. The big guy. So he's obviously, you know, two feet taller. I don't know. He's huge. And they're going through this battle, and they've got three shields. He, he you know, just crushes these three shields on the Joyous and all he's left with the sword. And you think the Joyce is going to die. Banderas is freaking out. Like, why don't you stop this? And you feel as lost as he does through that entire sequence. And next thing you know, the Joyce comes in and, and kills him just easily. And they start to explain it to Banderas and like, look, the whole point of this is we need to keep that guy guessing so he doesn't do anything against us. Yep. And that's honestly, that's probably my favorite sequence of the entire film because it exemplifies the one part of the film where I was right there with Antonio Banderas. And I'm and I'm like, okay, he's doing such a great performance that he is on screen doing all the things that I'm thinking in my head as I'm watching the sequence. And it's a great sequence. I actually think that's one of the best action sequences, even though it's not a full blown out action sequence it's it's kind of like a, a cool duel no i agree like that's the scene that i as the audit like i was like oh this guy is gonna die like yeah absolutely this is gonna spark some sort of other sort of conflict or something i'm like because there's no way because he's you know getting destroyed and then all of a sudden it turns on a dime and you're like oh okay and then they explain it and you're like oh that's really smart. <laughs> these guys are actually really smart too. Like, yes, they can fight, but they also have a good head on their shoulders. They know what they're doing. They know strategy and and they understand the concept of what they're up against because they're they're basically using the same thing. If you fear what you don't know, then it it sort of immobilizes you. And they're using that same concept to kind of keep themselves safe from sort of this conniving son who, you know, just wants to take over the throne or something. But yeah, yeah. I, I really love that sequence, but it, it proves two things. I mean, you know, Antonio Banderas is always a great action hero, in my opinion. He's super likable, but he's so good in this performance. And, and that scene kind of shows it off to where he kind of brings the audience in and you get to experience what he's going through. Yeah, he plays the clueless part really well. He does. He, the other thing which I, I thought was kind of funny is that there's the whole sequence with him and the Viking woman in the village. And um, he's he's riding off in into, I guess, battle. And she's coming down the road. And he, he's given this look like, hey, are, are you, are you going to call me? <laughs> like, we just, we just had this moment, right? She brushes his leg while she's making the walk of shame back from the barnyard the or barn. whatever. Yeah. yeah. And um, 
dude, he just, he looks hurt. Like he wanted to cuddle more, but he didn't get that. And she's like, I got to go back and do my stuff. You got to go fight these things. But you, you, he, I don't know. He just gives off this sensitivity, which I thought was, again, what I liked about that scene is you would expect that from, I think the female character, but he's showing it and and she's playing into sort of that strong Viking woman's like, I'll brush your leg, but that's all you're getting. Yeah. Um, I mean, he is like a poet, right? Like yes. he's a poet. He's and very romantic. So, so yeah, he's so, yeah, he's got that romantic part in him. And, and if there is anything that the first five minutes of exposition of why he got booted plays into is maybe that sequence. And I, to me, I think that's a stretch, maybe. but I, I, I always thought that was kind of funny is because I expected her to have that expression and that look like, Hey, call me. I thought we connected. And, and it's really him kind of going, Hey, what, what do we do next? And she's like, yeah, that was a, that was a great one night. Um, go, go on, get out of here, go kill yeah. some stuff. Don't so. get those feelings. Don't catch feelings. Yeah. So I, I love that sequence. And then, I mean, everybody else is just doing Vico, Vico, Viking stuff. Vico. It's, um, it's zero depth. I mean, Again, I, I like men, women on a mission movies because you get to see the personalities. That's the only drawback to this one. There's a few personalities that come through, but uh, I don't think the film concentrates on that aspect of the genre. It just wants to get to the action. So it, it really is about like a singular performance versus everybody else in the film. But I yeah, again, I, it still works. Absolutely. Um, can we... So you mentioned a couple of things that kind of bugs you about the film. There's there's really only one thing about this film that really bugs me, and it's the uh, the ship sequences in the storm. So, oh, that when they're riding on the cartoon. Yeah, I dude. Talk, oh my god, they did not spend money on that. Not at all. I mean, talk about a prime example of '90s bad special effects. I mean, like like Nintendo sixty four, like. I don't know what, I mean, you, you said it perfectly. The money was not spent on the CGI. In in fact, I think they would have, I don't know, had a better sequence if they just filmed toy boats in a bathtub, right? With oh, that. I mean, I, it is shocking how bad it is because when you compare it to like, it's terrible. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure building a, a, a life-size boat is expensive but it's like they built all this other stuff why not a boat I, and they're not on a boat for very long like it's two minutes i think they built the boat i just don't know what they were doing with the whole storm thing yeah because there are elements of the waves hitting and you're like well i see the boat behind the waves it's clearly not there it's a yeah it's a piece of paper they're i don't know pushing <laughs> up and down on water i don't know what it was um what else, man? I mean, it, this one's kind of a hard one to do a deep dive on. I mean, it's a shallow it's film. it's not deep. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a shallow film. I mean, the production. It's a puddle of a film. The production design is fantastic. Ooh, I, the soundtrack, the soundtrack. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Let's talk about that. I think the soundtrack is pretty good. Like that, the main theme is is a banger. I agree. I but when you read the production notes and you hear okay, Jerry Goldsmith did the soundtrack for this. I'm really curious what the other soundtrack was like. Um that they went ahead and, and ditched that. Now, what they ended up with is fantastic. But I, I'm I mean the my, guy's pedigree is he's up like I have you heard of 
Jerry Goldsmith before? He's 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 a little bit of a well-known composer. He's, yeah, I was. Uh, yes. I, I was gonna say he's up there with John Williams. I mean, he did Total Recall, so yes. that's where I know him from. So <clears throat> he's. If you go back and look at Jerry Goldsmith Goldsmith filmography, you are surprised at how many I don't know movies he's done, but how many catchy orchestral theme songs he's done to. Yeah, he did that Mulan. The, the main theme of Mulan, yeah. the cartoon, which is really catchy and, and nice. Um, and of course, you know, he follows Crichton to the, to the Jurassic port. He does lost world. Yep. Um, so no, I'm just, yeah, I, I, I think it's, I think it's a great soundtrack and it, it really sort of, you know, these, <laughs> these films that are the, the, the music is so important to the, the epicness of things in the sort of, the levity of it that um, you kind of only notice when it doesn't work. So when it does work, you're like, Oh, that's good. It really helps everything. But I tend to just be like, Oh, that music was totally wrong. You know, like it's, it only music can only take me out of things. Um, Obviously it enhances things, but I really only notice it when it's really bad. And I, I think it's great here. I agree with you, but I also notice it when it's in a scene where I think it's unnecessary. Like one of my biggest gripes of films today is sometimes it can't embrace the silence. So you'll see a scene playing out, um, not even just an action scene, but you'll see an exchange or you'll see something go down and they will put a soundtrack playing within that sequence and you know, okay, this is the soundtrack to make you feel X. Yeah. And yeah. at the end of the at the end of the day, I'm almost looking at this going, all right, they're doing that because they don't have faith in the performance or faith in how the scene is playing out and so they're trying to get you to feel the same way. Yeah, they use the, the music to mani- how to like manipulate your feelings. Yeah, and and I think it can really detract from a very good performance um when you're trying to focus on that, but yet from an auditory standpoint, you have the music kind of playing in the background and it's very schmaltzy or it's overbearing because it's a big action scene. Um, I, I don't know about you, but any any more, especially in modern films, I appreciate movies that just don't have music in key sequences. Yeah, the silence does go a long way sometimes. Yeah. Now, you can't use it all Letting the time. Letting things breathe is like important in films. It, it is, and and I think from a soundtrack perspective, this film does a good job of that. It, it has the right balance in terms of, like you said, it's not overbearing. You remember the soundtrack. It fits everything perfectly, but it's not so overbearing that it takes away from what you're seeing or even kind of what's unfolding in terms of, the, of how the character exchange is going. Yeah. Man, what a movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, hey, look, it, this is one of those films when we watch. Um, I loved watching it, but I can also tell you at the end of it, it's like, what in the hell are we going to talk about? I mean, it becomes a couple of those. Hey, remember this scene? That was really cool. And then cool. I'm not a big fan of this thing. But outside of that, I mean, I, I was surprised when I sat down and thought about it, how many things that were different or interesting about it, you know, just like the production design or, or the horror aesthetic that they're trying to, you know, put within the film itself. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think for a 1999 film, Minus that boat stuff, like it holds up really well visually. It, it is. I'm I'm super sad it doesn't have a high definition Blu-ray 4K release. 
don't know how this thing would look on 4K, but I, it needs something other than a DVD. I ended up buying it digitally because I only had it on DVD, and I'm like, it was they said it was in HD, so I, I splurged and got that, and it looked pretty good. Oh, um, okay. I need to go back and look at the DVD and see, you know, if it it's just an up res of that, or if, if I feel like it's a little bit different, but. Yeah, the, it, it the DVD was fine. The DVD was fine. I mean, the, the audio on it sounded great, but um, th- this is one of those films that, to me, screams for a little bit of attention. I would love an Atmos soundtrack to a movie like this. <laughs> of course you would. Or DTSX, but... Uh, okay, so is it time for the question? Yeah. Okay, so Brad, this was your pick. We're starting out year two with a John McTiernan film from 1999, 13th Warrior, starring... Antonio Banderas. You can't say his name without saying it that way. You can't. (laughs) Okay. Um, So is the 13th Warrior a bomb? Obviously, the 13th Warrior is not a bomb. I had a great time watching this film. I will probably watch this again relatively soon. Oh, really? Just to kind of, yeah. I I really enjoyed it. I'm a sucker for Norse stuff. Like, I really am. I hate that, like, the alt-right has kind of taken the Norse stuff and, and run with it. <laughs> but uh, I really enjoy it. And I like this one is a little bit more grounded in reality. And and so you don't get the fantastical stuff, which I also like. But Thor isn't showing up in this or anything like that. But, you know, it, it, it and it kind of connects that line to, to Beowulf as well, which I dig. So, yeah, I, I like it. Don't put a lot of don't lean on this film too much because it will fall over um but <laughs> yeah. just enjoy it for what it is i agree um i'm with you it, it's not a bomb it it is a manly movie uh, in my opinion and we're not talking like chris hemsworth thor just baby oil glistening kind of i mean it's or a, tim Al- we're not talking about tim allen mainly either yeah no 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 the, this is like the the real guy stuff i mean it, it's a total guy film um, if, if we had a manly clubhouse with like no chicks allowed, I think, I think this movie would be on regular rotation, the he-man woman haters club. Yeah, exactly. I, and, and it's decent, although I, I still would say it's forgettable, but it's a decent action film. Um, it's not McTiernan or Crichton's best work, but it's man, it's so enjoyable and entertaining it's by far. It's way not their worst either. Yeah, no, no, no. It's way not their worst. I agree yeah. with you there. It's uh, here's the thing. It's good at what it focuses. It focuses is <laughs> focuses is, is is. Oh my gosh, yes. we That's should really stick to Sundays. Talking uh, is hard. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's good at what it focuses on doing. It it really tells a basic story and it shows lots of action. I like that it introduces those horror fringe elements, but this is one of those things where it's it's not groundbreaking cinema. It's just entertaining cinema, and I I do find it's very rewatchable. But you know, again, it, I'm not going to sit there and go if you're telling me best action sequences or best performances or best visuals or whatever. This isn't going to come up in the discussion, but it is going to be one of those that anytime I see it, I'm I'm going to go, oh yeah, I wouldn't mind watching that again. Yeah, especially like kind of getting into the film, like if you really wanted to watch this movie in an hour, like if you get to that first like great hall scene and just watch from there, like I think you're totally fine. You, you don't need see, to That's a up. good point. I, this is one of the few films that no matter where I come in on the film, be it 15 minutes into it, 30 minutes, an hour, I would probably sit and finish watching it because 
I, I like there, there's nothing in this film to where I go, well, just skip this portion. I only want to watch this portion. I would, I would, wouldn't mind watching any of it at any point in time. Except for that info dump at the very beginning. Yeah. The info dumps like five minutes, man. It's oh. Hey, look, Hey, I, I, have you seen Loki, the, the new Marvel TV series yet? I am not. Okay. I, I'm going to be in the minority on this. Um, and with probably most TV shows, I am getting really tired of the exposition world building episode where it's uh, I'm going to spend 50 minutes and give you all the rules so that you can get on to the rest of it. And what I kind of appreciate, you know, for this film is I get that exposition in the first five minutes and then we're just into it. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, Loki is, I guess, an entertaining first episode. I am excited, excited to see the second episode because in my head, I'm like, cool, we got all that crap out of the way because you just you spend an hour just telling me things. Um, now start showing me what what is the story? What's going to go on? I spent I spent 50 minutes for a reveal. What I like about this film is, well, here's five minutes. Now we're just going to get into uh, Antonio Banderas. Now, now enjoy the next 95 as we go. Yeah, let's go for it. Yeah. So I, I yeah. appreciate that. No, I, I, I have a few extra days where I don't have to watch stuff for our podcast. So I, I will, I will watch Loki this weekend for sure. Yeah. I'm curious on your thoughts. Like I said, I, I'm, I'm in the minority because the minute I, I give that opinion, I get this weird look like, Oh, you hated something Marvel. And I'm like, I, I don't hate it. I just, I think it's kind of lazy storytelling in that first episode. Now I'm still, I'm still along for the ride. I just, I'm kind of getting yeah. tired of, you know, movies or TV shows thinking that they have to lay everything. Let me, let me, I don't know, discover it, explore it. Let's go just get to it. What else? I, I guess, do we get to talk about next week's? Yes. Okay. So look, um, we, oh boy. we have gone through every genre possible, I think in a year and you started to kick the second year off with McTiernan's 13th warrior. So that covers the action genre. I thought, Hey, let's, let's go drama. Let's, let's do pure drama. So I, Brad, would you agree? Like one of the greatest, um, works of art from a drama perspective is Shakespeare's Hamlet, right? Yeah. I read that in high school. Okay. Um, I, I mean, there's been tons of films on it. I, I mean, Shakespeare, that's, that's grade a drama. So yeah, I thought, yeah, let's, let's do the sequel to Hamlet. Iambic pectameter. Is yeah. that what that's called? I yeah. guess. I don't know. I'm you sure. were the English major. How, what? Look, English writing. That doesn't mean oh, that I, <laughs> I'm an expert on all things English. But listen, Hamlet's a pretty big piece of fiction. But I thought it would be boring to talk about Hamlet. So let's talk about its sequel, Hamlet 2. They made a sequel to Hamlet? They made a sequel to Hamlet. And I and and I know this sounds crazy. It it really picks up where Hamlet left off. Um, and I think it involves Jesus and a high school and time travel. So, you know what? That sounds like a perfect film for us to review. And I think David Arquette's in this movie, too. And David Arquette is in this film. So, if any of you are interested in the sequel to Shakespeare's greatest play, Hamlet, and involves all the things that we just talked about, plus David Arquette, then you can turn, just, you know, listen to us next week, download next week's episode, because we're going to tackle Hamlet, too. I can't wait, man. I actually, I. I didn't even know this movie existed, so I'm I'm ready to to watch it. Um, I've got it coming in. 
It'll be here like on Monday. So I'll watch it Monday or Tuesday. We so might have out. a guest for it too. Uh, once I put this out there, there were a couple of people that reached out. So um, we, we may go back to bringing a guest on. So I'm excited. Yeah. Um, I know last week was our one year anniversary show, but again, everyone, thank you for listening and, and sharing our podcast and reaching out to us and, and saying, Hey, I'm listening to this episode. I can't believe you guys said X or Choi said this about Jackie Chan and Choi said this about Tom Cruise. <laughs> Choi likes every movie. So, uh, you know, I appreciate that. Um, you know, you and I just do this, but it is nice to know that people listen. Um, and we have friends that want to come on. Um, I'm super jealous of you this weekend. We're recording early because Sammy's coming to visit you. Yes. Um, so, you know, it, it's just a lot of fun. Um, the Friday show was had a different vibe. I, I hope people oh, enjoy, I, enjoy Troy's uh, sauced up vibe. I, I, I liked it. Um, spoiler alert, we had to take about three or four breaks because Troy had to pee a bunch. But, <laughs> oh, you know, come on. You gotta, you gotta, look, listen, <laughs> I, it was a long week. And no, I get it. I told I get you it, we were going to do dinner. I just didn't know at dinner we were going to try these other crap beers. Anyways, I'm not totally soft up, soft up, sauced up. I am. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, totally. All right, cool. Well, I just. No, I'm, officer, you're the drunk <laughs> one. <laughs> I think I handled myself well for a Friday. Yeah, you did. You did a great job, man. And we tried a new intro to the show. Yeah. You know, we're, we're experimenting with, you know, the format and just to kind of keep things different and, and loosey goosey. So, yeah, well, I'll, I think it's funny. Um, we had a choice and the choice was, hey, look, uh, Sammy's coming to visit uh, with his family and he was going to be staying here. Uh, couldn't do anything on our normal recording time. And he's going to stay for a few days and we're, we're showing him all of Baltimore, et cetera. And with his family here, I wanted to make sure, you know, hey, I, I didn't I didn't want to lose two or three hours. Yeah. But but you and I had a choice of, well, let's skip a week. Or let's push it up and, and do the recording because, you know, we do 13th Warrior. We were really good last year. I was kind of proud of the fact that we released an episode every week. And when it came down to it, it wasn't about the schedule. It wasn't about anything else. I, I couldn't wrap my head around not talking to you for a couple of hours about a film uh, during the week. Like, I would have, I, I probably would not have enjoyed having Sammy here unless I knew that we were going to do this. So yeah, I, I appreciate that part too, man. Yeah. As much as I have enjoyed everybody coming on Twitter and listening to old episodes and, and pointing out some funny stuff we say. Um, and even after we did the, the one year thing, we, we had a lot of messages come through and say, congratulations. And sorry, I couldn't, you know, put a question in and, and that's fine. I know a lot of people are probably listening to that one year episode a couple of weeks or even a month after it's released. So that's cool. But you know, at the end of the day, I, I love the interactions with people that we've met, but, uh, dude, I, I couldn't go through a week without just talking about a movie with you. So, yeah. Yeah. Once we reached, decided we were going to record on Friday, it was getting through the work day to day. It was like, okay, I only got a few more hours and then Troy and I will dick around on the mic for a bit and talk about 13th Warrior <laughs> and that'll, that'll be the good, you know, period to the end of the work week so yeah i think it was my, fun it was fun i think my family is annoyed with me tonight because i'm like um yeah hurry up let's go i i got i got a date <laughs> uh so listen brad if if people want to reach out to us and tell us their favorite movie bomb 
or share their thoughts on the 13th warrior, how do they get a hold of us? That's not a bomb pod at gmail.com. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, we've had a lot of interactions on Twitter um, and Instagram, and we're doing pretty well on Facebook as well. So if you want to, you know, reach out to us on those platforms, we're there. Um, we're still looking for some suggestions. Um, Troy and I are, are trying to do some themes for each month, kind of going forward. Um, you know, we're going to be doing some things like films we've never seen before in animated films and video game stuff and all these sort of things just to kind of keep, you know, sort of cohesion with the episodes of the month. Um, Cause I, I like doing that stuff to kind of, you know, fit everything together. We did, you know, Halloween, obviously we did spooky movies and then turkeys for, for <laughs> November last year. So, uh, and we even had an action month and it man month. So I, I like doing stuff like that just to kind of make a, a theme for the month. So we're going to be bringing a lot of that stuff back this year too. Um, yeah, we're officially kicking off season two of the podcast. Um, thanks for uh, joining in and, and listening in. And Troy, yeah, Nathan, we will get to death this week. I promise it's coming. It it will get there. Trust me. Are we moving it up? Can we just move it up to something? You know, it, at this point, it's kind of funny. I I think how long can we go on without talking about it? Uh, yeah. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But um, no, I hey, it's episode fifty three. In case we didn't say, you know, most oh, it is, most yeah. podcasts would say it that at the very beginning, but we're saying it two hours into it. This. Is, 53 so I, you know what i feel like we're terrible podcasters because a we don't tell people what episode it is b we're so excited about the movie sometimes we skip over the premise and well uh, so okay guy who's on the internet who gets mad because it takes us an hour to review a film troy and i do not review films we discuss no. it yes we do not review well we, heck, not we, a, we don't even talk about the plot half the time no no because it's that's not i mean if it's important to why it, it bombs, like if there's some sort of weird plot twist that like, I don't, you know, that, that changes the whole tone of the film and people hated it. Like that might be important, but we talk about why we think things succeeded or did not succeed or, you know, things like that. Like this is, we are under film review podcast, <laughs> which is store, amazing. Yeah. But that's because we can't fit anywhere else. Um, I also wanted to shout out to all the people in New Zealand and in, I think, Sweden. Oh, um, Sweden. Yeah, we, it's really big. We have like one of the, the top <laughs> film review podcasts in Sweden and New Zealand. So big shout out to that. It's funny that we like literally one of the most popular. I don't know what we're doing. I, it's crazy. I, all I'm saying is, and I, maybe by next week I'll have this commercial done. I, I want to advertise for Swedish fish because Swedish I, fish. I want free Swedish fish. That's one of my favorite candies. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll think it will, you know, we, we need to get our, uh, Advertising our LLC game put together so we can, you know, start get that tax ID number. Okay. Well, Hey, uh, thank you for listening. Um, thank you for putting up with us on a Friday night. Obviously, you know, uh, it, it like you're going to hear this probably on a Tuesday when it releases. So this is irrelevant, but whatever. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, they're going to ask me like, what is wrong with Troy? He can't say words typically. Well, look, it's the end of a work week. That's all I'm going to say. Um, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, the evening. Thank you for downloading the episode. I hope your day is fantastic and you're just, you're just having an awesome experience. It's a river of slime. Dude, that was the last episode. 
I know. I, I just love it. Okay. I went back and listened to that every time it got me. All right. We'll do your goodbye. Uh, thank you. Have a nice day. <laughs>